Yeah, good afternoon. Happy Sabbath to those who are watching. I thank you for joining us for this um, worship service today. I pray that God has blessed you throughout this week and that as we open together on this Sabbath day, open his word, that we may be blessed. Um, just had a thought that came to mind, um, not the message, this is not what the sermon is going to be about, but um, yesterday a relative, well, a very famous um, movie star passed away. And there's a point from that I wanted to share. And that's this. In the last four years, they've done several movies, some of the biggest box office movies ever, Black Panther being one of them. Now, for four years, the last four years, they've been fighting with a terminal cancer and yet until yesterday nobody knew that this person was dealing with a terminal illness fighting with cancer that was going to end their lives so while they continued their job and filmed this and filmed that no one knew and the point is this i think that we never know what other people are going through in their life and knowing that they're going through a hard time should not be what makes us be kind to somebody. We should be kind and considerate and courteous and Christian to all people, knowing that what people are going through in their lives may not be exactly what we see. And that as a church, we should exhibit the fruits of the spirit to everyone because we really don't know what's going on in people's lives this time and what, 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 what they're going through. Sometimes people tell everyone their business and other people keep it very private. So it's important for us, I think a lesson for us to learn, to, to remind ourselves, let's always remember to, to treat others well because we know not what they may be going through. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads for prayer as we begin this message. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would bless us and be with us. And as we open your word and meditate on a few of the passages there that you would speak to us and touch our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to share with you a story, um, episode of history as we begin our sermon. It was on May the 26th, 1940, when the British and French armies were suffering a damaging blow to their hopes of winning the war. They Germany had invaded Poland and the British had said to Germany, you know, don't do that. So they had invaded Europe and they had, you know, taken up the fight with Germany. But the German army in all its might was driving the British and the French back from Germany westward towards the coast of the North Sea and the English Channel. And the British and French were retreating rapidly. The French went back to France and the British went to the beaches of Belgium. Uh, Dunkirk was the area and there they waited to be evacuated back to Britain. Now, for some unknown reason to this day, historians don't know exactly why, but Adolf Hitler, for some inexplainable reason, waited three days, a halt order to his army, which actually gave the Allies enough time to begin the evacuation on the beaches and get most of the people off safely. The German Luftwaffe was flying ahead, but the, the, the soldiers on the ground, they had, for some reason, they, they, they didn't advance all the way. And so uh, 
while the Brits are lined up on the beaches to um, get evacuated home, they were able to do so in relative um, peace. Now, it was an emergency. You had uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the beaches of Belgium, and there was an operation known as Operation Dynamo. The Brits, the British put an announcement over the radio and they said, anybody who has a boat, go over there to Belgium, France, go to the beaches and pick up the soldiers and bring them back. So while there was a mass evacuation using military vessels, there was also this huge evacuation using just normal boats, 113 fishing boats, 26 yachts. Now yachts are posh, 26 yachts, 113 fishing boats, 34 tugboats, you know, boats that just tug other things along. There were 693 boats in total. 311 of the, those boats are what we would classify as small crafts, just small little boats that are owned personally. 311 small crafts, uh, 26 uh, yachts, fishing boats, tugboats, only 150 of the 690 boats. Only 150, less than a half, less than a quarter of the 693 boats were actually military boats. So you had this huge flotilla of boats sailing from England across to France and Belgium over a period of seven days back and forth, evacuating a total of 338,226 soldiers in total over a seven day period. 338,226 soldiers were evacuated in seven days by this flotilla of 693 boats, of which only 150 were military vessels. The rest of them were personally owned, or they were owned by clubs, or they were owned by different organizations, but they were not military boats that would normally have been used in a wartime setting. Now, for a country that was then and still is today deeply divided upon class lines, this was probably one of the first times in history where the rich and the poor worked together hand in hand, where you had people that were more wealthy who owned boats that were going to pick up the, the, the more working class uh, soldiers who had just been fighting in the war. And, and, and this blending of the classes together where this the people pulled together is now by historians looked back on. The fact of the nation pulling together in a time of adversity, you know, when the German army is advancing across Europe and, and, and has got the British pinned on the beaches and the, the army is on one side and the water's on the other side and there's no escape. There's this dramatic, you know, uh, uh, scene and, and the boats come and rescue the soldiers. This term today we find used often in society called the Dunkirk spirit. It's a phrase that is used, particularly here in England, maybe in other countries as well, that describes a situation where people pull together in a time of adversity. 
you would comment on a particular town or maybe a city or maybe a, an instance that takes place and you would say, you could say, oh, they have the Dunkirk spirit. Meaning, what does it mean? The spirit of people pulling together, the spirit of volunteers who normally would not help, helping out in a time of emergency and crisis in order to save and help other people. The Dunkirk spirit where the nation pulled together some historians i remember when i was taking history lesson in my a levels our teacher would uh taught that this this episode of history about dunkirk and, and he said that this dunkirk spirit historians look back on it and they say that the spirit the nation of the nation galvanizing together during the month of may in 1940 brought the country together so hard that it made in retrospect defeat for the British that much harder or maybe even impossible because the country was just mm, strongly together. Now, when I think about that story, I think about different Bible stories, and I think about us today and the times in which we live. And I think about the crisis that the world is going through. The year 2020 is like a year like no other. The, 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 the disasters that have happened this year, the, the famous people that have died, the, the, um, the COVID-19 that is that is torn our world to shreds. All of these things that are happening in this year. And then I think about the church and I think about where we are today. I remember mine going back to March. I mean, March seems so long ago. And we think, I think back to March when, when the lockdown first happened on March the 21st. And, and we thought, oh, it's just going to be for two weeks. Oh, it's just going to be for four weeks. By the end of April, you know, the end of May, and, and definitely by June or July, things will be back to normal. Things will be back to normal and we'll be back in churches. We'll be singing again. We'll be praying again. We'll be hugging and kissing and, and, and having a good time. Now that seems long ago. And I think now we're starting to realize that, 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 that maybe what we're going through as a world and as a society, it's not just for us to wait to see uh, when normal will return, but rather that there will be a new normal, that things will be different, that maybe this is a hard reset on the world itself and, and how we live life and how we do life and, and, and the modes of communication and operation, they may all change for, for the long term and we may be on a new trajectory. And how do we as a church look at the situation that we're in with the, with the autumn and winter coming up. What's the world going to hold in the end of this year? What's 2021 going to look like? And how are we going to adapt to that? I suggest to you today that as a church, as individuals, as a community, as families, we have to pull together like in the Dunkirk spirit of old, like never before in order for us as a faith community to approach the times in which we are living. I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and open it to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes before the book of Esther, um, which comes just before the book of Job and Psalms. So it's there just before some of those big books of the Bible. Nehemiah. Nehemiah was written at a time when Israel had been captives for several decades. They've been captives for a long time in a foreign land. And all the while that they're captive, they're thinking back to their land of Jerusalem. You know, when you are born in another country and you go and live in another country, the country that you come from always holds 
fond memories. It's always, you know, even, you know, you always remember the good and you forget the bad and, and a home just seems so much better than where you are. Even more so that these people were captives in a foreign land. And so home had so much more nostalgia than maybe for us who just think about the place where we grew up. Home for them was a place of freedom. It was a place where they, more importantly, where they were able to worship God in the temple. And so here in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, is getting ready. Uh, he wants the children of Israel to go from their, their captivity where they are and to head back to the land of Israel and to go back to the city of Jerusalem. And when you read in, in Nehemiah, we have chapter one of, of Nehemiah where he outlines his burden that he has for the city of Jerusalem, the burden that he has to go back home. And Nehemiah chapter one is basically Nehemiah just praying, Lord, I want to go back home. Lord, I beseech you, verse eight, you know, you, the word of your servant and so on. He's saying, Lord, please remember your people. Nehemiah chapter one. Then we have Nehemiah chapter two. And in Nehemiah chapter two, the Bible says that, um, the Bible says that Nehemiah talks to the king and uh, Nehemiah talks to the king and the Bible tells us that he goes back to Jerusalem. It comes there in verse, verse 11. He says, so I came to Jerusalem. He says, I was there for three days. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, when you read through the, the story, that he, he doesn't actually tell anyone he's going back there. He kind of keeps a lot of things secret. And there's a few principles uh, that we can learn from his life there. The Bible says he goes back to Jerusalem, verse 12. It says he arose up at night and he took a few people with him. He didn't tell anyone, it says there in verse 12, what he was going to do and what God had put on his heart. And neither was there anyone with him except the animal or the, 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 the horse on which he is riding. And the Bible says in verse 13 that he goes out by the gate of the city and he goes and, and, and goes around the city. He inspects the walls, verse 13. He sees where the walls have been broken. He sees where the gates have been consumed with fire. Uh, and the Bible says he went to the gate of the fountain, verse 14, and, and he saw that there was nowhere where the, the, the animal he was riding could go under. He goes and sees all of this, verse 16. The rulers didn't know where I went. So he's going out and he's inspecting the land. He's kind of doing what we would call today a site visit. He's checking out the city of Jerusalem. He's weighing it up and seeing, you know, what's there, you know, what needs to be done. And the Bible says in verse 16, and the rulers knew not where I went or what I did. Neither have I yet told it to the Jews, nor the priests, nor the nobles, nor the rulers, nor to the rest of them that did the work. Verse 17, then said I unto them. Now he's back. You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and the gates thereof and are burned with fire. Come. So he says, hey, guys, look. And he doesn't paint over the situation and says, yeah, 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 it's not too bad. It, it, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's kind of all right, actually. He says, you see Jerusalem. You can see that it's lying waste. You can see the gates are burned with fire. You can see that in the terrible situation it's in. He says, come, come. Come, he says, let us build. And then he gives the reason why. So that, he says, we be no more a reproach. Nehemiah galvanizes the people, not with false promises, not with something that, that you know, they, 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 he says, listen, it's terrible, but come and let's go and build it because we don't want it to be uh, this, you know, a reproach or we don't want it to be an embarrassment to God and his cause. We don't want God to be looking bad because his city is looking bad. Come, let us build. And the Bible says there in the next verse, in the next verse, then I told them of the hand of God, which was good to me. And he says, and they said, 
No, as as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me, and they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. In verse verse, um, 17, he says, come let us build. In verse 18, they say, yes, let us build. He asked them a question and then they answer it. The key word there is the word us. There is a clear agreement between the people, the leader coming together and saying, let us build. Jerusalem's lying waste. We're in a crisis. We're going back to our city. Let's restore it as a place to live in. Let's restore it as a place to worship. Let's see what happened. And what happens is chapter three. Chapter three is often one of those chapters that people just read over in the Bible. Why? Because it's just a list of names. When you go to Leviticus or you go to Numbers and you read through the Bible and you find just a list of name, 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 name. Sometimes we just read over that Matthew chapter one, name, 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 name. Here we have a list of names, but there's a little bit of description and it's the description amongst the list of names that I believe means that chapter three is worthy of our study. The Bible says in, if you have a Bible, get your Bible out, your phone or your iPad or or your your hard copy. It's good for us to read the Bible together. I know we're not in the same building, but I'm going to read through a few verses. Get your Bible out. Turn to Nehemiah chapter three if you're not there already. And the Bible says there in verse one, The Bible says there in verse one, then Elishib, the high priest, rose with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set up the doors of it, even to the tower of Mia. They sanctified it unto the tower of Haniel. And verse two, and next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachar, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hanassah build, but also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto him they repaired Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz, and next to them repaired Meshulan, the son of Berechiah, the son of Mezazabil, and next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Bana, and next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their next to the work of the Lord. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Pesia, and Meshula, the son of Besodia, and the beams thereof, and they set up the doors thereof, and the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Melatiah, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah and the throne of the governor of this river. And next unto them repaired Uzziel, the son of Ha-Haya, of the goldsmith. Next unto them repaired Hananiah and one of the apothecaries. And they fortified Jerusalem with the broad wall. And I'm going to stop there because I'm having trouble reading all these long names at a fast pace. Here we have a list of all these people, and it gives a little bit of description. Now, the chapter has two things. Number one, it has the names of the people recorded, I believe, for their honor. Even today, you know, sometimes people may have given a significant amount of money, or they may have worked particularly hard in building a building, and whether it's in society or in church, and we sometimes recognize that with, you know, a plaque or something about their names and say, this person, you know, did a tremendous job and worked you know, tirelessly for this organization from this year to this year, and we commemorate it by putting their name somewhere. We still do that today. And I believe their names are written down here to remember their zeal for God and their country, to show their industry, to show their courage, and to show that what they did was for the praise and the encouragement of others to follow. Names are important. We should not just read over names. 
The second thing in this chapter, which I will not be covering in this, this sermon today, is the order of the gates in which they were built. And that would be a whole separate study or sermon. The, the, you know, the order of the gates they built, I believe, has some significance to it. First of all, they built the fish gate, then the old gate, then the valley gate, then the dung gate, then the fountain, then the water, then the horse gate next to the sheep gate. And, and the order, some say, has some significance and spiritual lessons for us. However, we're not going to look at that. So it has a list of names and then the list of the gates that they built. But it's the names that I want us to focus on. It's interesting that in this chapter, as all these people are building together, there is no contention recorded in the chapter. There is no animosity recorded in the chapter. There are no separate interests or um, written in this chapter. We have the first thing point that I want to know, and that's the first point is in verse one. The Bible tells us, reading before it lists all the other names, it says there in verse one, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they sanctified it by prayer. Here, I believe at the very beginning of the chapter, the priest, the ones ordained as the leaders in Israel, they set the example for everyone to follow. And I think if God has called you to a particular position of leadership, with that leadership comes a responsibility to set the tone for others that follow you. Ellen White says in one of her writings in publishing ministry, she says that the spirit manifested by the leader will be to a great extent reflected by the people. And if God has called you to be a leader, whether it's in your, your home, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in your church, the spirit that you manifest and the ethic that you manifest and, and, and the, you know, the ethos that you have will be reflected to a large extent, to a large extent by the people. Here the priest set the tone by building first and they are mentioned first then we go down and there's other people that are mentioned and, and, and one of the things that I find you know when you read the bible and you study the bible it's always important to look for re the repetition of certain phrases and any does anything come up again more than once and there's a phrase that comes up when you read through this chapter about 10 or, or, or even more times than that in the first 17 verses. And we find it come up in verse two. It says, and next unto him built the men of Jericho. And next to them built Zachar, the son of Imri. Verse four, and next unto them repaired Merimath, the son of Uriah. And next unto them repaired Meshulam, the son of Berechiah verse five, and next unto them, the Tekoite. You find this phrase, I don't have time to go through all of them here, but you find this phrase, next unto them, come up over and over and over again. It gives this, this idea, and I believe this thought that they're building here, then right next to them, someone else is building physically, but also there's this, I believe more than just they're next to them physically, there's this element that next to them, they're working together, they're bonding together. There's something about working together with people. You know, if you go out and you do some manual labor, there's something about doing 
physical work with somebody that just kind of bonds you with them because you're actually building something together. You're working hard together. There's something about doing ministry work with someone. Maybe you're in the same choir as someone. Maybe you've gone on a mission trip together. There's something about working together that bonds you with those people for a long, long time afterwards, if not forever. Ministry together, working together, bonds you with someone. And here in this chapter, you find evidence of that next unto them, next unto them, next unto them. And here we are today. And I think, you know, the, the reality in which we're living, well, we're not meeting as a face-to-face uh, -a -face church family anymore. We are meeting virtually. We have to think of ways. How do we creatively keep the connection between us as a church family virtually or in ways that we did not do traditionally so we still keep the work bonds together? The priests, they're the ones who build first. But then the next one that that, that, that that kind of came to mind as I was reading through, it says the fish gate built Hanassia. But the next verse as I was reading through that really just bam, hit me on the face like a ton of bricks is verse five. And I think when you read verse five, there's no way you can read verse five without being like, wow. He wrote that verse and he knew why he wrote that verse. And that verse has lessons for generation after generation after generation who come after and read Nehemiah chapter three, verse five. The Bible says, and next unto them. So they're working next to them. Next unto them was the Tekoites and they repaired. But then it says, but then it says, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. This one here just kind of, hmm. Next to them was the Tukoites, but their nobles did not put their necks to the sword. You know, these Tukoites were working hard as a people, but they had some lazy leaders amongst that family group, the Tukoites. This late, these lazy leaders would not come under the yoke of obligation. It was almost like that the, the liberty, so to speak, or the dignity of their position and peerage discharge them from serving God or doing good. None of us, let no one think that the work of God or any particular task in the work of God is below us for advancing the work of God that we are working for. None of us should ever use that phrase, don't you know who I am? Or none of us should exude that attitude that we have reached a place where we are above doing something that's a very lowly, lowly job. The Tekoites worked hard, but their leaders did not put their necks to the sword. You know, it's like someone saying that I'm too important now. And, you know, if you're in the old church building, I'm too important now to move chairs around or I'm too important to sweep the floors or I'm too important to just serve food. I want to be the one who's doing the cooking. I don't want to just serve or or, or I, 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 I'm too big and special to just preach or sing to a congregation of 10 people. We're living in a reality where who knows if we're ever going to have big church back again, you know, small church and home church and, and small group may be the new reality going forward. And if you get your high from performing or preaching or being in front of a lot of people rather than just doing the ministry itself, then you've got a problem in our church moving forward. These leaders 
did not want to put their necks to the sword because they thought they were too important for the job at hand. You know, there is a challenge of leadership in the sense that, you know, every time you move up in a layer in an organization, those below you often think that the people higher aren't doing anything. I remember when I was a coal porter or a literature evangelist and I was a student, I was working in America. And as a student, literature evangelist, a coal porter student, I would watch the leaders and, and see what they do and see them driving around in the cars while they dropped us off to go and, and work. And I would look at them and think, man, their life is so easy. They don't have anything to do. They're just driving around, dropping us off, picking us up. And it just seems so easy. Then I became a leader and I was like, ah, hmm. There's a whole lot more that they do that I had no idea that they do. And it is true that, you know, when we look above us, we often think that the people above us are irrelevant and they're not doing working hard until we get to that position. Then we realize, oh, actually, there is a lot of work here and there's a lot of things that they're doing. But that's not applying in the verse five of Nehemiah chapter three. These people are not in a position where they're working hard and whatever, whatever. The Bible is quite clear. It says they would not put their necks to the work. We need to take these these divisions in our in our churches or in our in our families or wherever away from us where you've got you know the leaders and the people and the leaders to do or don't do that and the people will, will have to do you know certain tasks and so on and I know there's different cultures and, and, and so on around but we all the culture of Christ is to have the attitude that we are willing to do anything for Jesus no matter what that's the culture of Jesus Christ. That's the culture that we need to have in our life. Not that's not my job. Let someone else do it. I believe, I believe these people, they came together. They came together. But there's this one lesson here of this one group of people that's a co-ite that is recorded there as a warning to future generations. Let none of us think that our position or who we are has excluded us or excused us from working for God. Let it never be written about us that the people were working hard, but the leaders were just put in there, they were not put in their necks to the sword. We need to come together and build together. You know, I've had the privilege to do some church openings or dedications and whenever you uh, assemble at a, or steer occasion like that that's the time when the stories come out uh, about about you know how certain people lived and I remember I was at I was at one in Birmingham one up one up in Yorkshire and when they have the church dedication and the reopening of the either the new building or the extension or whatever and they start to tell the stories about about the deacon from 30 years ago and, and what they would do and the sacrifices that they went through of waking up at this unearthly hour to light the boiler and mo so it could be warm for when people came and you start to hear these stories of dedication and commitment and sacrifice and you realize it's those stories of people in generations gone by that built the church that we have today but what is it going to look like going forward in the new reality that we live in and I believe I believe that today today you know while some of us are waiting for a new normal to return the normal may never return what church looks like may be very, very different. Some of our leaders of the church may struggle in the new reality of what church is looking like now. Maybe it will continue to look like that in six months. But the principles of hard work, dedication, commitment, and us as a church family pulling together, not having strife or tension between us, that is a principle that needs to last amongst God's people moving forward. 
reading on down in Nehemiah chapter three, we come down there to verse eight. And that's another passage of a verse that stands out. It says, next to him repaired Aziel, the son of Han Hahaya, of the goldsmiths. I find that interesting. The goldsmiths and, and the merchants are mentioned in verse eight. And they're mentioned again in verse 32. It says, the goldsmiths and merchants repaired the gate. I find this interesting. Here's people that own businesses. Here's people that own, you know, they're making money, so to speak, but they've excused themselves from their shops or their goldsmith work where they're making money. And they've come to actually do something that's not within their profession, but builds up the body of Christ. They've come away trusting that God will make up for them financially what they will lose by leaving their business and they've come to do manual labor with the people of God and work in a different area and I think this this illustrates something of how the church pulled together here you've got the maybe the more wealthy members of society maybe the more business-minded members of society coming together and still working in an area that is different for them and they did not think that their calling or their financial status excused them from the work that was at hand. You know, I believe, you know, today in our church, no matter what, 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 what job or occupation you hold or, or, or what your status in society is, when we come into the house of God, we all need to work together for a common good and a common cause. The Bible says there in verse nine, and next unto them repaired Raphael, the son of Hur, the ruler of half part of Jerusalem. Here we have a ruler of Jerusalem and even here, a ruler is not above working here on the ground. And we have another illustration of someone, you have a, a goldsmith, now you have a ruler working together. In fact, the word ruler is mentioned about eight times in the book of Nehemiah, chapter three. Then we come down to verse 12 and the Bible says, and next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of Ha, another ruler, and he and his daughters. It wasn't just the men who were here building. Here you have a man with all of his daughters out there building. Everyone was coming together, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, were coming together, building, building together. We find this spirit of unity, this spirit of cohesion, a spirit of the church coming together. And I believe this same bond and unity that we see in Nehemiah 3. It's the same bond and unity that we see in the book of Acts when the early Christian church started after Jesus ascended to heaven. And it's the same bond and unity that you and I need to pray for, that we need to plead for, to have in our churches, in our youth groups, in our societies today. Some of us may be hearing this message and thinking, well, my church is not like that. This is something we don't just create by human means. Sometimes it's something we got to pray and plead for earnestly. Verse 20, verse 20 says, and after him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, earnestly repaired the other piece from the turning of the wall unto the door of the house of Elisha, the high priest. Here the Bible on this person described, he earnestly repaired it. He did it with a zeal. He did it with, you know, uh, with courage and with determination. 
The book called Porter Ministry, page 118, it says this, those in the service of God must show animation and determination in the work of saving souls. There's got to be this earnest desire about what we're doing. It's not just a duty. Lord, change my heart to, so that I can see that what I'm doing is not just something I have to do. It's something that I have a passion deeply to do. Verse 30. Verse 30, we're just working our way through the chapter. Verse 30 says, and after him repaired Hannah, the son of Shalamiah, and Hannah, the sixth son of Zalaph, another piece. I find it interesting that it mentions in verse 30 that he is the sixth son. Sometimes in the Bible, you've got to look what, what, what is not said as well as what is said. He's the sixth son, implying, obviously, there's five older sons. It doesn't say the sons came, but it says the sixth son came. The sixth one. Not son one, two, three, four, or five, but number six is the son who came. Implied there, quite clearly, I believe, is that the elder brothers declined or refused to work. But the sixth son worked. The sixth son broke the cycle of laziness, broke the cycle of lack of responsibility. The sixth son broke the cycle of his family. And the point here is a point that all of us can take to heart. No matter how bad our family is, no matter what influences we struggle with as individuals that we have inherited from our older siblings or from our parents or from our grandparents, we all need to know that with Jesus, we can have a fresh start and break any pattern that our family may be locked into. Here, the sixth son went to work. While the older brothers didn't, and, and, and it's so hard, much harder when you're a younger brother and you've got the example of all your older siblings, but this sixth son looked at the older siblings and decided that the way his life was going to turn out would be different to all of his older brothers. And for us, you know, maybe you have good examples in your family, and if you do, then praise the Lord, but maybe, maybe not. And maybe you need to be that son or that daughter that changes the way things are in your family story. The Bible says there's an interesting part there in verse, there's, there's another verse I want to highlight, and that is in verse 27. Verse 27, the Bible tells us, and this happened twice. In verse 4 and 21, you have the same people mentioned twice. And in verse 5 and verse 27, you have the same people mentioned twice. In verse 5, as we read previously, it says, the next unto them that the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles did not put their necks to the work of the Lord. We read that in verse 5. We've looked at that already. But notice verse, verse 27. It says, and them after them, the Tekoites repaired another piece over against the great tower that lies out even to the wall of Ophel. So here the Tekoites are mentioned again. They actually did their section of the wall. Then they went and did another section of the wall. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like their nobles set such a bad example by withdrawing from service that the people now work doubly hard. Either, firstly, maybe they were trying to shame their leaders into actually coming and working, saying we've done our stretch of the wall. Now we're going to go and do another stretch of the wall. Maybe they were trying to shame their leaders or maybe they were trying to atone for the carelessness of their leaders or their nobles by doing more work to, you know, you know to, 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 to try and atone for their, their laziness. There's something about them. 
And we look at these names of the story. We have the names of priests. We've got the names of people from wealthy families, the goldsmiths. We've got the names of just, you know, normal people. We have the names of sons. We've got the names of daughters. We've got the sixth son, but not the first five sons. We've got the Dakotites mentioned twice. We've got other people mentioned twice. They are coming together. Come, let us build. They are building the church of God in Israel, in Jerusalem, at a time when it was extremely difficult for the church to come together, for God's people to come together. We also face some challenges in our church that the church has never faced before. We are you know, seeing a global pandemic that we have not seen for all of our lifetimes and how we as a society act and how we as a church live and, 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 and figure out how to worship and, and, and dwell in this reality is a challenge that no one has faced. But even though no one has faced this challenge before, and even though things may be extremely different before, the Bible says in Romans 15 verse 4, that whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The stories of the Bible are given to us to encourage us in the times in which we live that things have happened before that should encourage us today. And when we read Nehemiah chapter 3, we can see a story that is just a list of names recorded in the Bible. But the principle we find there in Nehemiah 3 is everybody of every background, every type of education, every type of financial status pulled together in order for the city and the temple and the walls to be built of Jerusalem. The times in which we're living today, that same lesson applies directly. We as a church need, though we may be isolated geographically, there needs to be a coming together through prayer. There needs to be a coming together through study and a coming together through a willingness to work in whatever way we can use our gifts, our talent or our talents for God today to come together. And like in Nehemiah chapter three, they said, come, let us build. And the people responded and said, yes, we will build together. They came together and this spirit of unity enabled them to rebuild Jerusalem. I'm not suggesting the church today is anything like Jerusalem in times gone by, but the, the, the church today is facing a challenge just like they faced a challenge in the past. And that same unity amongst us as young people, amongst the church at large, needs to be had on a small micro level in our local churches. It needs to be across the regions of our conferences. It needs to be across our conference where we come together as a people and work for the common good of taking this message to all the world in this generation. It's my prayer. It's my prayer that when Jesus says to us, let us go and take the message to the world, that we would respond to God and say, yes, let us go together. May God help us and may God be with us that no matter what, stands in front of us, no matter what stands behind us, we may have a spirit of togetherness, a spirit of unity, a spirit of determination, and a spirit of courage to work together with each other and together with God move forward. I'd like to invite you to bow your heads as we close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pause and we thank you for your goodness, your mercy to us. Bless us, Lord, we pray. May we not be people that 
do not put our necks to the work. May we not be people that leave it and leave a bad example to those younger in our families. But may we be those, Lord, that pick up the work that lies nearest to us. That we don't look to shirk responsibility, but that we ask, Lord, what can I do in my part of the world to work for you? Bless us, Lord. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.